You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. I'm amazed. I'm yeah. I'm amazed how much God seems to teach me in the week leading up to the message. And often I have to pinch myself and think, well, yeah, of course, Sam, you just you just thinking about a topic and your eyes are always opened up to it. But um, so, something happened this week. I was hosting an event in a city in the city and. Uh, it was a, it was an it was definitely an interesting event. There were people from all walks of life, and up came uh, up came a lady with the the, the five most um, cutest little girls I've ever seen. They all got matching dresses, and uh, they had a little brother there that was tiny, and so they were from ages two through to eight years old. And she said, "Oh, look, can you can you uh, take take a photo for me with the kids?" and I said, yeah, sure. And, and as I began to do that, she began to explain how uh, she had a photo there as, as to how her husband had uh, recently uh, passed away with uh, cancer eating away at his jawbone and eventually taking uh, over his body. And uh, this photo was the last picnic that they'd had together as a family. He was a mighty man of God and a great Christian. And as uh, she's sort of holding back the tears, it was still raw, it was still fresh. It was only a matter of months past. Um, what do you say to that? As you see all these girls running around, almost oblivious uh, to the gravity and the tragedy of the situation that was unfolding. What do you say to that? And tonight we look at uh, a topic which we will grapple with for the rest of our Christian lives, and that is suffering. How, how do we deal with suffering? How do we push through it? You see, the big idea of this whole series has been that uh, we underestimate the power of our believed-in futures, and so what role does hope play in the midst of suffering and hardship and grief and pain and tragedy? Uh, what does it mean practically for our lives? And so look, let, me, let me start tonight too because it's probably not a message for someone that is right in the midst of suffering. If you are suffering tonight, if you're experiencing pain tonight, you know, you're probably, probably already lost you in that sense. And I just want to say that's totally fine. You don't have to listen to the rest of the message because you, the only message you do have to get tonight, this is a place, this is God's church is a place in which we're, we simply want to cry with you. We, wanna, we just want to hug you. We just want to get alongside you and to comfort you and to, uh, and to be with you. That be the only message that you need here tonight. But suffering like it is with this lady, to me, it seems inherently unfair. It's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. Much, you know, much of life is not fair. And so much of the Bible says, thankfully for us, that God, God is a just God. Uh, there's so much language about God's justice, the way that his righteousness and his justice throughout all the Psalms will come back, that God is a just God and justice will be done in the end. But until that day, that day when there are no more tears and there are no more suffering and there's no more pain and there's no crying, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, we'll get a hint from Paul as we read through his letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 4. If there, if it were, there was a guy that knew about suffering, it was him from verse 7 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, But we've, we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. And so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so it's written, I believe, therefore I've spoken. And with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All, all of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're going to look at suffering tonight, and I wish I could cover it all in one message. We could do an entire series on this. Uh, so in, in that way, a book that's really shaped uh, what I'm going to be saying tonight, uh, an understanding of the broader framework, framework is Don Carson's How Long, O Lord? And I encourage you, if you're someone, again, not in the midst of suffering, but, but want to build a framework around that, read that in your own time. It could take about three or four weeks, but uh, you're going to be able to process it and work it through. It's so tough to get this through in 20 minutes, and that is the burden that I've carried all week with me. But see, the thing is, if you live long enough, the chances are that you might see a child pass away. If you live long enough, the chances are you might be in an accident. If you live long enough, you might see someone overtaken with disease. If you live long enough, you might even endure a war. If you live long enough, you might lose your job. What I'm trying to say tonight is that uh, then the probability of suffering is that suffering is inevitable. And Paul's audience would have known that. Sorrow, pain, injustice. It wasn't uncommon to them. It's probably why in verse 16 that he says to them, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Paul knew it. His readers knew it. He, they understood that this world, uh, suffering was inevitable. And realistically, if we be real with ourselves, for us in this incredible, amazing country and the lives that we live, our lives are on the other end of that spectrum. We, live, we, we, we don't understand that because if, if for some of us that are younger here, we are the first generation not to experience a war. We're the first generation not to experience a Great Depression. We're the first generation not to experience a famine. If we look at ourselves honestly, we're, a, we're the comfort generation. And that's, that's, that's indicated by the sorts of shows that dominate our attention on television, Dancing with the Stars and Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Hills and all the things that I need to repent of. Um, But you see here, the, the, isn't the irony here is that, 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 that most of the anxiety that we see in our lives, I'd be willing to put it, if you use some common sense, is rooted in our desire to run away from pain. We're worried about being uncomfortable. We're worried about losing what we have. I'm worried about losing what I have. And it's a constant battle to keep my eyes focused on God. We're, it, we're, we're, there's a an, there's an deep-seated anxiety in our culture. And that came up when I was listening to, yes, I listened to AM radio uh, the, other, the other week. And probably why I'm wearing this jacket. Um, and I'm listening to AM radio and the, the most bizarre sort of statistic came up in response to this NAPLAN testing that is happening. Uh, that a, a psychologist was interviewing year three, grade three students about uh, their feelings around the NAPLAN test and so what their greatest fears were. And in the, the top five fears of grade three students in this country was rising petrol prices. 
thinking, these guys don't even own cars. And they're worried about petrol prices. But here's what I'm saying. There is a, there is a deep-seated anxiety in our culture. You're getting what I'm saying here? They're just trying to avoid pain, the pain of not having a car for crying out loud. And guys, so look, on the flip side, on the personal side, as I grow older, one of the greatest challenges in my life, and I'm finding in my ministry, is that there are answers that people are seeking from life that I am constantly now having to come back to the answer that says, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't give you an answer. I can look to the Bible. It could feel glee. I don't know. You know I, I, I just don't know. I've got friends that are dealing with relationship heartbreak. I've got friends that are dealing with crushing disappointments, friends that are dealing with family meltdowns, friends that are losing jobs for the first time, friends that were on a superstar track with careers and have been gripped and shattered by mental illness. I've got, I got friends that are in sort of seemingly irreversible medical issues. And I, I don't know about you guys, but particularly for the young adults here, we, what, what, what I am discovering is that life is, is somehow seeming now to whittle a track in which our personal sovereignty seems helpless in making a choice to get us out of suffering. There are answers in which I say I don't know. There are problems in life that I've got no solution for. And no, no doubt that's probably what Job felt, right, in the book of Job. He'd lost his family, he'd lost his livestock, he'd lost his business, he'd lost his health. And isn't it amazing, the story in there, I got a real insight when I was reading through it, because I thought if you're talking about suffering, you've got to talk about the book of Job in some way, and, and we know a bit of his story, one of the most righteous men, God and Satan, having a bit of a wager, and, uh, and, and, and Job is the object of that wager, and he's a righteous guy, he loses it all. But the funny thing that got me was the way that his three friends began to chip in. They come down, Job's scraping sores off his arms with bits of coal. They're sitting around the fire and they begin to chip in. They begin to say things like, maybe your sin led to this, Job. Job, you can't force God's hand. Don't you know, Job, all of God's ways are higher than your ways. God's, God's good timing, Job. Oh, Job, the wicked will die. Job, the righteous will succeed. Job, change your attitude. And what I thought was fair fascinating was i thought they they seem half plausible they seem like they're half of my pastoral answers i could sort of get off the shelf and 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 you know what you know what the crazy thing that i thought oops i sort of pushed them to the side a bit was that god absolutely smashes these friends when he's talking to job he's furious at him in fact job in all his suffering and the sores and the pain god says job i want you to pray for your friends he wants Job to pray. They seem like reasonable answers. And in a crazy twist, that's what God's saying. I'm furious at your mates. You pray for them. You ask for forgiveness on their behalf. Why was Job's friends being rebuked by God for what seems like some pretty standard sort of answers? We might even give them to someone who's hurting and suffering. Why? Because they were trying to box God in. They, they were trying to come up with little theological cliches. They're trying to come up with these sort of little formulaic statements in terms of, Job, how we can help you through the suffering. And so what, what occurred to me, and like what Don Carson says in his book, is that when we're faced with this excruciating adversity, we might be tempted to lash out with millions of questions for God, like Job, questions we could spend a whole series on, come up with the kitschy, cliched answers. And yet if you're trying to summarise this book of Job, then, uh, then it would be this, that when there is suffering, there will sometimes be mystery. But the real question is in the book of Job is, will there be faith? And there's a question that I pose to all of us tonight, that when we, go, when we go through suffering, there will be mystery. 
the inevitability of it, but the question is, will there be faith? The, prov- the probability of suffering I'm finding is increasing as, as I'm getting older. It's inevitable. So the question is, how do we deal with it? What, what, what do we do with that? And then we see the pattern of suffering, of course. You go to the guy who knew all about suffering. This guy was the king of suffering. And, uh, and, and Paul, in this letter to Corinthians, is writing to a church where his credentials are getting hammered. This is the Paul uh, that we see that God calls him out in Acts chapter 9. He says, this is the guy who's going to be my chosen instrument. I want you to show, uh, I'm going to show him how much he's got to suffer in my name. And what we find is that suffering's not only inevitable, it's intrinsically linked to the Christian life. And so 2 Corinthians is written to church, to a church where Paul's authorities and his credentials are being questioned. If you read the whole book, you'll see that Paul's responding to people who are saying, look, can you really trust Paul because is is God really with him? If this guy's, is he really with him? Why? Because one of the lines of the reasoning for this, why they're talking about it, is that Paul seemed to have an inordinate number of tragedies going on in his life. I mean, he was a bit like Martin Short from the movie Pure Luck. You know, bad things were constantly happening to, to, to Paul. He was going through all these sorts of tragedies, and this is how it goes. You know, he lists them off. He's saying how he received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He's been constantly on the move. Danger from rivers. Danger from bandits. Danger from his own countrymen. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the country. Danger at sea. Danger of false brothers. It's danger, man. 2 Corinthians 11, go and have a read through. Look, here's the question. Here's how it would go. Here's what we would say. Look, can God possibly be with a man like that? You know, if God is with you, you know, surely if God's with you, aren't you supposed to be prospering? If God is with you, aren't you supposed to be, uh, uh, supposed to be protected? If God is with you, isn't he supposed to be blessing you? Imagine someone saying, I've travelled around the Mediterranean for three years and I've never been shipwrecked. And look at this guy, Paul, three times. He's, this guy has not got a good record. And he's calling himself an apostle. And this is the question I've alluded to that Job's friends were asking around the campfire. You know what they were saying to himself? They're saying, look, if, if this much is going wrong for Job, Job, what have you done wrong? Confess your sin. What have you done, what have you done wrong? What would you do? If God's with you, this wouldn't be happening, right? And so I've got, to, look, I've got to ask you tonight, is that the sort of question that you've asked yourself? Is that the sort of question you've asked yourself when you've gone through seasons of life, of pain and hardship, and you think you're at the worst spot, and then you, you're just taken to a whole other level, level further? Is it, you're thinking, what, what, what have I done? Where, where is God? Isn't he supposed to be with me here? <laughs> you look at God, life and you go, this can't be right. Either, either, either there is no God, and that's how some people react when it comes to either there is no God, or this, this God's certainly not on my side. He can't be with me. And the question is, how does Paul respond to that? How does Paul respond to the premise that, oh, you know, God can only be with you unless you're on the up and up and not getting yourself shipwrecked? Look, he goes further. He goes, he goes wonderfully further in that. You know, he says that, that his, his sufferings are not just a, as one commentator said, it's not just a denial of the gospel. In fact, his sufferings are a confirmation of the gospel. The pattern of suffering the ups and downs, verse 11 and 12 of Second Corinthians 4, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. And so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so Paul's saying the gospel, the way the gospel works, death leading to resurrection, hopelessness leading to vindication, weakness leading to power. 
injustice leading to triumph. What he's saying is that 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 pattern of life is at work in us. The way the gospel worked in Jesus' life is a way that the gospel can work in my life, the, the way that the gospel can work in your life. Just as Jesus suffered his death and it led to a greater life, the same sort of thing happens. That, 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 that the death to ourselves leads to something greater. And it's, not, it's a metaphorical death and a death of, 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 of economics and, and, and emotions that we're constantly putting to death in the Christian life. And so what example does he give us to work it out in our own lives? Like, come on, we want to say, how, how's this work? How's this work, Paul? And what I like about it is Paul, Paul does work it out in his own life. Like it's really amazing to compare 2 Corinthians 4 chapter 8 with 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. Write that down. So 4 verse 8 verses 1 verse 8, chapter 1 verse 8. See, chapter 1 verse 8, he says, he's comparing the last great suffering he went through. And listen to this, he goes, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. You know what that is? He was, he was beginning to lose hope. He despaired for his life. But in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, that he goes on later to say, he says, we're hard-pressed on every side, we're not crushed, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. So in 1 verse 8, he says, oh, we're in despair, I've, I've lost all hope. And then he goes on and says, but now we're not in despair. It sounds like a contradiction. What's he going on about? He, is a man as Paul always seemed to do this? It's a great sort of preaching technique. It's just, he's sort of written for us later on. It makes, it makes, makes the Bible interesting, don't you think? He's, you see, Paul's saying when you're actually going through the suffering, the reality is you, you do feel like you're being crushed. When you're going through the suffering, you do feel like you're in despair. But the difference between those two passages is time. And what we see is, yeah, you're saying in, in chapter, four, chapter 4, verse 8, yeah, I was in despair, but now, look, now I can look back and I, I can see that God was sustaining me, that God was propping me up, that God was holding me, God was comforting me. How? Through a living hope that can remember, that can never perish or spoil or fade. He was being held up by the living hope. As time passed, he said, yeah, it felt horrible at the time. And so for the person in the midst of suffering tonight, and for those of us that are prior to suffering, we must remind ourselves that God is always in control. God is always sovereign. And that sounds like a pretty cliched sort of statement to make because you say, yeah, Sam, come on, what are you talking about? Have you seen the sort of things that are going out there in the world? Have you seen the sort of things that people are getting away with? Have you seen the sort of poverty and affliction and just hardcore evil that is happening in our world? How can God be in control of this when we see all this evil in the world? And there's an amazing statement, part of the story that I picked up from the Old Testament this week in studying through Genesis chapter 50 is the back end of the story of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. You might have seen the musical. It's actually a biblical story. And... And, and it's this incredible, we sort of know Joseph's story, right? He's, he's, he, he was having these dreams that said how all his brothers are going to bow down to him. They've got to be jealous with that. Uh, they sell him off into slavery. He's lost for years and years. He spends years in a jail. He starts having these crazy dreams. Pharaoh sort of likes them. Raises Joseph up to be the governor of his entire kingdom, pretty much. And his brothers have absolutely no idea. And then eventually in this great twist drama unfolding, you could write movies about this sort of stuff. Uh, Joseph deliberately seeks out his brothers and wants to reunite with them and hides his identity from them until you get into the latter chapters uh, of, of chapter 50. And what's happened is that um, Jacob has died. The brothers have understood that Joseph is their brother and they're thinking, holy moly. In fact, they even get dad to write a letter to say, please don't hurt these guys when I'm gone. You're thinking, the minute dad is gone, Joseph is going to pull out a can of whoop-ass on me so big that... (laughs) 
they, they thought Joseph, whose retribution was a right of his after the way that they had treated him, they are cowering in front of him as Egypt's first minister. And Joseph has the ent- power to hang these, up, these guys up from the trees. They bring in the note from dad and Joseph sweeps their tears away. He hears the way that they throw themselves at his feet and it says that Joseph wept. And in an incredible statement, he says, get this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What an incredible way to think and act after all that pain and suffering. See what an example this is of God's, God's sovereignty. It doesn't say brothers sold him into slavery and then God miraculously turns around and saves Joseph. Nor does it say that God intended for first-class treatment of Joseph all the way to Pharaoh's cabinet and then the brothers mucked the plan up along the way. No, what it says is that God was always working his sovereignty in and amongst the decisions of evil in order to bring out the good in the midst of... Is that an amazing statement or what? God is always in control. And friends, it's a reminder for us that... Look, here was what I was thinking. Does it remind you of another brother that got a bit of a raw deal? A brother of the human race who was cast out of his family, endured pain and hardships and suffering only only to be raised to control the king's business? Does the picture begin to sort of paint twinkles of a story that we've already heard of, the ultimate story? You see, that is what a Christian, being a Christian really is. Being a Christian is to understand that we're like the brothers that finally realize the identity of the king and we fall at his feet. And whilst he has every right for retribution for our rebellion, he looks at us and he weeps. And he says, don't, don't do such a thing. At the cross, although they intended to harm me, God intended it for good. Even for the disciples in the midst of the absolute hopelessness, God was in control. And that brings us incredible comfort tonight as Christians because that is the pattern of suffering. Hopelessness melting into vindication. Weakness melting into power. Injustice leading to justice. Death leading to life. And that is the paradox of the cross, guys. That is the upside-down nature of the cross. It's a crazy part of the cross because the cross, cross both destroys and it establishes the credibility of God. Because on one hand, what sort of sovereign God is hanging from either hand on a tree and subject to these Roman rulers and put to death? What sort of sovereign God is that? But at the same time, God didn't didn't intend this first class treatment for Jesus. At the same time, when the disciples are asking, what would God know about suffering? When we ask, what would God know about suffering? At the cross, we meet God in the suffering. God is always in control. And where there's suffering, there will sometimes be mystery, won't there, guys? But the question is to the disciples then, the question is to us not tonight, will there be faith? God is always in control. And so finally we see the plan for suffering. Look, I've been to the giant sequoias of Yosemite National Park, these incredible trees that that, that grow to 100, 150 metres tall, the giant redwoods they're called from time to time. Now, my question is for you tonight, could you really get an appreciation of the giant sequoias if you stood five centimetres from the bark? (laughs) It's a wonderful, it's a beautiful tree. It's huge. 
Uh, friends, at time we, we need to step back in our suffering and realise in the trials and the hardships that we face that we are staring five centimetres from a giant sequoia. We need to step back and see the incredible story, the incredible beauty of, of the story that God is painting for us. And in the same way, that's why Paul was trying to get us to stand back in verse 17. He says, you, you, you're not looking at the whole tree. He says, for our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And the incredible thing is that Romans 8 seems to be a, cha- a, a, a passage that has turned up in just about every sermon of this series. And, and, and until you put it alongside this passage tonight, 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 to 18, you're not going to see the incredible uh, claim that Paul is making. In Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The sufferings now are not worth that which will be revealed in us. But in verse 17 of this passage, he says, At the present time, the sufferings of the present time are producing the glory. The sufferings of the present time are achieving the glory. The sufferings of the present time are working out the glory. What's he saying? It's another Pauline contradiction, isn't it? We just love it, don't we? What is is he saying? What is he going on about? Look, there are lots of ways that we can approach suffering these days. We can avoid it. It was the way that people dealt with suffering in Paul's day. You can avoid suffering. Other people... They, uh, they accepted suffering. They just took it for what it is. Yep, the world's a bad place. Life sucks. Other people embraced suffering and they almost prided themselves out of heaping this suffering on themselves. But you see, what we see, guys, tonight is the gospel doesn't, accept, doesn't just accept. The gospel doesn't just avoid. The gospel doesn't just embrace suffering. It swallows it up. It swallows it up. How it swallows it up? What do you mean? It's got to do with hope. It's all got to do with hope. You see, what's the Christian solution to suffering? We said this last week. Is it just going to heaven? <laughs> Tough news was Jesus didn't come back this weekend, right? <laughs> is, it just going, is, it just, is it just going to heaven? Because if it's just heaven, then that's just compensation for what we've lost, the family and the friends and, and, and the good times. If it's, that, if it's just going to heaven, then... then, then then heaven is just compensation for what we've gone through. Hope is just an insurance policy that we're going to get the claim on when we can sort of enact it out and we, we, we pass through death. But if hope, like we saw last week, is the new heaven and the new earth coming to earth, a restoration of life that we've always wanted, we're not just going to be compensated. Everything will be made new. Everything will be made new. Look, the question is, have you ever been lost? Have you ever been travelling and gotten crazily lost? I did that when I went to Prague once. It's, it's quite serendipitous that my best mate from Canada's uh, out here tonight and listening to this message up in the kids' room uh, because he was the one who told me that I should never go to Prague because I needed a visa to go to Prague, but I didn't want to get a visa to go to Prague. And you've heard me tell this story, and I got off the train too early, and I got lost in a station outside of Frankfurt at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was scared, and I was tired, and it was painful, and it was horrible, and I was freaking out. And, 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 and I spent a whole week in this strange land of, of trying to find my way back home and get reunited. And, 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 and eventually we, we met back up again on the top of uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Biblical. <laughs> and, and when we were finally reunited, in, and in sort of that small sense, I knew I was home with my best mate. Every bit of pain, every bit of uncertainty, every bit of fear in my life got swallowed up by the joy. <laughs> the things that I was absolutely freaking out about, about I, he and I laugh about it now. 
Well, he says to me, you need a visa to go to Prague. It, what, what I'm trying to say, guys, tonight is when the new heaven and the new earth that we've been talking about, the ultimate Christian hope, that'll turn every hardship that you have ever experienced into joy. When that happens, that is going to swallow up. That when, when you are home in that sense, when you are reunited with the ultimate friend, Jesus Christ, the, the, the pains and the hardships of your life are going to get swallowed up in a joyous reunion and i've said to people you know like it's when we go to heaven i don't want jesus to be like a keith urban that i've admired from a distance but i've never really gotten to know like if if i see keith urban in heaven and i hope i do because he's got a few songs that mention the word god if i see if i see keith in heaven i'm like you're keith urban and it's really good but i don't know his life i don't know what he's going on about i'll have nothing to talk to him about you see what is suffering in the christian life other than Something that with great experience and intimate knowledge we can share and talk about with Jesus Christ. Now, come on, there's all sorts of theological arguments as to whether we're going to remember the the suffering there. But you you, you get what I'm saying, right? At least I'm going to have something if I suffer in this life to talk to Jesus about. You were... People people persecuted you because of me? Yeah, I went through that too. God's plan for suffering tonight, guys. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and they, and they will live with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will, he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him or she who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost the spring of the water of life. The plan for suffering. It's going to get, it's going to get swallowed up. And every bit of hardship is going to become, it's going to get swallowed up into the joy. Guys, there will be a day. There will be a day. No more tears. No more crying. No more mourning. No more pain. No more suffering. And until that day, guys, as Christians, we've got an awareness that the, of the location of our suffering is smack bang right in the middle of the street in between the now and the not yet. And although we have a down payment by the Holy Spirit, a preview, a trailer of the great things that are yet to come in the glory of God, there will be pain and suffering. Our God reigns, our God reigns, but it is in the jaws of pain and suffering until that day. Hope in the midst of hardship says, at least there's a third umpire. That's what it's saying tonight. At least there's a a referee looking out for the cheap shots. And people will be brought to justice. There is a third umpire. He's seen every cheap shot. There will be a day. And until that day, every minute of grief, every ounce of pain, every tear that we cry will be swallowed up. The question is, what do we do in the meantime? What about the friends? What about the friends that are going through this? Let me just pastoral implication. One quick quote, C.S. Lewis says, on the far-reaching subject of teaching patience in suffering, he said, I was never foolish enough to see myself qualified 
nor having anything to offer my readers, except the, convi- the conviction that when pain is to be borne, little courage helps more than much knowledge. Little human him- sympathy helps than much courage. And the least snippet of God's love more than all. And the least snippet of God's love more than all. Courage more than knowledge. Sympathy more than courage. God's love above all. There's an inevitability of suffering. And there is a pattern that we will continue to live until God brings his plan to completion. We see the giant sequoia for the first time in our lives. And where there is suffering, guys, there will sometimes be mystery. And my question to you tonight is, will there be faith? There will be a day. And until that day, as one writer says, when I walk through the suffering, let there be an offering like a fragrance rising in the valley of shadow, not to waste my sorrows, but to trust and to follow until the day when you wipe away every tear, you will hold me, carry me until the day when you take away every fear, no more suffering. Who can imagine? That's hope in the midst of hardship. Let's pray. Father, we lift those up to you tonight that are in pain and in suffering. Lord, we ask that through your spirit you help us discern what it is we would say to them. Father, in so many ways, may it not just be in words, but in, in, in hugs and in, in time and and in genuine sympathy, Father God, may they find our peace and comfort amidst your community, I hope, here at Northside. So, Father, until that day, will you help each and every one of us uh, prepare for those tough times that will inevitably come? But, Lord, we, we know deep down and we sense already tonight that we are never going to truly be able to answer the question, am I up for it? Can I take it? <laughs> will I make it through? until we take those steps into the darkest moments of our lives and we discover that as you say in your word through your son Jesus Christ, that blessed are those that are at the end of their rope, that we find that your street address is in the hurting and the broken and the down and out. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Lord, Uh, We pray that that becomes a reality for some tonight. We pray that that becomes a reality for us as we move into those dark times. And as we do, Father, may we hold firmly uh, by faith to the ultimate hope that you are making all things new. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.